Hello and welcome to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Hugh Osborne and as always I'm joined by Hannah Wakeford and Andrew Rushby and today we're asking the question, how many exoplanets are there? But don't forget to check out our other episodes this month where we chat to Dr. Baptiste Jarnot about icy moons and icy planets in Exocast 45b. And in Exocast 45d, we cover, as always, all of the news from the last month in the world of exoplanets. Um, But Hannah, why don't you kick off this Exocast 45c for us? Yeah, so we want to answer the question, how many exoplanets are there? It's something that I don't know about you guys, but I get asked every time I talk to somebody else about exoplanets from outside of the field, how many planets are there? And there's a number of different ways I find myself answering this question. So I thought it'd be a really interesting one for us to go through, because I'm sure our listeners also have this question, how many exoplanets are there? And I, the first thing I did was I typed in that question Uh, to a search engine. And I found the NASA Exoplanet Archive answer to that question. So I'm just going to read that out. Um, And that is, to date, more than 4,000 exoplanets have been discovered and are considered confirmed. However, there are thousands of other candidate exoplanet detections that require further observation in order to say for sure whether or not the exoplanet is real. The number of known exoplanets has doubled approximately every 27 months. So that's kind of like an official answer to the question of how many exoplanets are there. But it's really answering the question of how many exoplanets have we measured? How many exoplanets have we, as it says here, confirmed? And we've talked about confirming planets on the show before. Hugh uh, is our expert on that detections, confirmation and, you know, dismissing planets that aren't actually planets in the end. So... That's not really the end of the question that we want to answer. That doesn't tell us how many exoplanets there are. It tells us how many we know about, how many we've seen so far. And if that number is doubling every 27 months, that number is constantly changing. So we want to know how many planets are really out there. How many planets are there in our galaxy? How many planets are there in our universe? It's a very different question. And if you've listened to some of our previous podcasts, you might have heard us talk about something called an occurrence rate. Now, this is really the thing we're going to dig down into. What is an occurrence rate and how can that tell us how many planets are out there? Now, traditionally, the word occurrence and the term occurrence rate will refer to a rate at which something exists or is found under certain conditions. But Hugh, it's slightly different for exoplanets, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's slightly confused because, um, well, there's a couple of numbers that we kind of get for an occurrence rate in exoplanets. One is the number of planets per star, and one is the proportion of stars with planets. Because unlike something like, you know, the number of people with a certain illness, you know, coronavirus has an an, an occurrence rate, unfortunately, um, you can have multiple exoplanets per star. So unlike, you know, you can't have multiple of the same disease per per human. So... um, you can get two numbers here and those numbers are often not the same so uh, but both of those are the occurrence rate of exoplanets 
And the important part of this definition that is the same as if we're talking about a virus is that it has to be under those specific conditions as well. So each of the occurrence rates that we're going to be talking about will be under very specific conditions. And for these exoplanets, it's going to be what kind of star are they around? How long is their orbital period? What size of planet they are? Yeah, so I think maybe conditions isn't isn't the best word because what we're talking about here is like a a continuous distribution from in size or in period or in you know any 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 kind of parameter you can talk about so so you can split that up however you want um but it, yeah so you tend to have this continuous distribution that you're you want to kind of delve down deeper into to find out the occurrence rate of big things compared to small things or of you know things around this star compared to things around this smaller star but these occurrence rates themselves are they have to be born out of that nearly or over 4,000 planets that we know of. These occurrence rates are calculated based on those knowns so that we can try and understand those unknowns. So we need to look at first, what are the knowns? What are those 4,000 or so exoplanets and how are they distributed? So since the early 90s, exoplanets have been discovered and confirmed through a huge number of different techniques and each of those will require different aspects of confirmation, which will change how we calculate those occurrence rates. So from what we know, so the number of planets that we know, these 4,000, how do we take that and we look at that and convert that into this knowledge of the unknown? So it's quite a complex question. And I thought, you know, exoplanets especially add some complexity. We heard about how, you know, that. You know, stars might have multiple planets and that kind of throws a, a spanner in the works. So I thought we'd, you know, to take it back a bit and I'd I'd talk about fishing. <laughs> Sounds very relaxing. <laughs> I have never fished in my life, but I think this is going to work. Okay. I want you to imagine for a second that you're a lone scientist in a small port town and you've commandeered the port's fishing fleet for a week. And you've sent all the boats out to catch as many fish in the seas as possible. And you know, they're not throwing anything back. That everything they catch, they're keeping on the boat. And after a week of trawling the you know, rough seas around your port, they bring back their catch and they dump it out of the nets onto the quayside in front of you. And your job is to say, how many fish are there in the sea? Right. So that's, that's, that's the, the analogy we're kind of going to go with here. Just, just to make it a little bit easier for, for listeners to understand about how how you can go from that catch that you have to knowing how many fish there are and knowing how many exoplanets there are. Um, so, well, the first thing you could do is you could count them. We've heard 4,000 uh, exoplanets. So you could say there are 4,000 fish and you could say there are at least 4,000 fish in the ocean, which, you know, is is a first order occurrence rate. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. that <laughs> is. There is at least this many planets out there. You know why we know that? Because we measured them. Yeah. <laughs> But of course, we we want to know something a bit more about them. We want to know, you know, size, color, species, type. So what you might do is you might maybe, uh, instead of counting them in one big pile, you might lay some boxes out and say, okay, we'll have increasing boxes in this direction. We can say that's the the size and increasing boxes in this direction can be the color, a hue or something in, in terms of color. And so we'll make this grid of boxes and we'll take a fish and we'll, you know, look at the color and the size and we'll put it place it in its box and eventually once we've sorted all the fish out we can we have a box of like big red fish and we have a box of small blue fish and we can say okay so there are this many or at least more than this many small blue fish in the ocean and that's a slightly better occurrence rate because now you have information about the relative uh, you know how how many fish there are in this 
kind of category compared to another type of category. Um, but of course, one of the problems, well, the, the big problem is that um, these trawlers that you sent out, they don't scan the entire ocean. And so many fish are just, you know, miles away from the boats. They never get caught. So the first thing you really need to know is just how big a volume you've searched with your search, right? So so in this case, it means, uh, you know, how how much sea have, have your boats trawled and how deep was the, the net, I guess. But in terms of exoplanets, that's kind of how many stars did you search. And actually, in the case of um, the volume of stars, uh, actually, we don't know how big the galaxy is. So we can't, it, it's almost like we're trawling an ocean and we're counting fish, but we don't know how big the ocean is. There's a factor of two difference in terms of the number of stars in our galaxy. So, so the best thing to do really is to not think about planets per galaxy is we need to think about planets per star, right? And, and, in, in, in the same is probably done in, in fishing. You don't think about the number of fish in the ocean. That's a big number. You know, big numbers are kind of awkward to deal with. You think about the number of fish per volume, you know, per meter cube, per kilometer cube. So now we know we've fished a certain volume of our ocean. We can look in each box and we can divide by that number effectively and we can say an occurrence rate. But there's something weird when you look in the boxes in that you have a lot more big fish than small fish. And in fact, there are no fish below a certain size. Uh, when we know there should be, you know, sardines out there. The reason is, of course, that not every fish gets caught by our nets. The smallest simply th swim through. And it's the same is true with our searches for exoplanets. The smallest planets we cannot detect because they're you know, they, they cause such a small influence on their star that we just don't have the ability to find them. They swim through our nets. Exactly. So we need to study the nets that we've cast out and basically look at how likely it is, given the size or a color of fish, that they would have swum through. And we calculate that, you know, given this box of the size and, and color of this box of fish, what's the probability that that fish would have been caught by our nets. And this is what we call in occurrence rates as the detection efficiency. So how efficient you were at detecting given the parameters or given the size uh, of, of your planet or fish in this case. So now we have a detection efficiency. We're almost there. So say in the box with small blue fish, we have only two sardines, but we've calculated a detection efficiency of 0.01. So 99% of our fish that size swam through the nets. Uh, well, what we can do is we can... Uh, multiply the number we caught by its inverse detection efficiency. So basically, in this case, 1 over 0 0.01, which is about 100. So if you caught two sardines, then you're kind of adjusting here for the amount you didn't catch, and you say that you, you would have caught 200 if you were perfectly good at detecting fish. Um, and whereas for big tuna or something, you might have a box with, say, 45 fish in it, right? A lot of fish in that box. But if your detection efficiency is 0.9, say then that means you're only missing five fish from that box. And so your underlying rate of actual fish that you're finding is 50, which is one quarter the amount that you had for this box of only two fish in. And this is very similar to an exoplanets. We have a lot of giant planets, especially close to our star, but we know that they're very rare and we only find them because they're the, the biggest fish, effectively. The biggest and easiest to find. And does that always then result in something that essentially is lower in probability? That if if something's big and easy to find, then it's always going to have a lower occurrence overall. Well, I guess that depends on your search method, right? If your search method is 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 a really really fine net that's very small, you'll find all these small fish, but you won't catch any big ones, right? So it depends completely on how you're searching. You have to compute this detection efficiency 
for your specific method of searching. You know, you have to look at the nets of your ships and, and, and look at how f- how many fish would have swum through. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, and if and if you're doing pole and line, you know, you'd have a different defe- detection efficiency. And if you were doing, you know, shrimp nets or whatever, I don't know. You <laughs> All of the different knowledge. kinds of fishing. Yeah. No, I, that's the, I, uh, is shrimp nets one? I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing so well here. Scuba diver with a harpoon, <laughs> see what you can get. Yes, the harpoon fishing. Um, and finally, there's actually one more problem to worry about, and that's the fact that um, we've been haul- we've been counting everything we hauled out of the sea in those nets as a fish. You know, we've been sorting them into boxes by size and color, but actually, there are some things in those boxes that aren't fish. There's seaweeds and giant squid and mermaids and old boots there, right? And those in astron- astronomical lingo. Those are the false positives, like low-mass stars and brown dwarfs and instrumental effects. And these are confused for planets. Which one of those is the mermaid? (laughs) I think it's really important. Brown dwarfs, I think. They're very rare. (laughs) It's an analogy, Hannah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you're talking about rare rare planets that that are basically mysterious, right? I'd say something like, you know, a a small ocean-covered planet. But that's a planet that, you know, that's fine. That That would be counted. Ah, yeah, of course. So we have to basically also account for how reliable our search was in terms of detecting fish and non not non fish. And this reliability itself can can vary as a function of size and and color. You know, there might be more uh, red squids than there are blue squids or something. So so you can have to factor that in. But once you do, you you know you you create a number for a probability for each uh, of these boxes. That says, okay, what's the probability that you take a thing out in that box and it's a fish? You know, what's the probability that the thing in this in this parameter space is an exoplanet in the non-analogical term? Um, and so now you have these three parts: you have the sample volume, you have the detection efficiency, and you have a reliability. Then you can put those three together to produce an occurrence rate. Uh, and so at this point, you know, you, you're crazy scientist. You can multiply those three numbers for and with each of your boxes and you'll find you know how many fish per size and color there are in this in the ocean that you were fishing um and through transit and rvs and micro lensing it's it's the equivalent and just like through those things we've we've we're kind of this search this trawling that we did um it's kind of different from looking for the best tastiest fish right we 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 have some very nice tasty looking planets in our list but actually that doesn't tell us anything about the occurrence rate of those planets unless you go out and systematically trawl through the ocean in in a way where you can um you can calculate these these three numbers um so that's what kind of kepler was doing whereas the ground-based surveys and and other kind of very kind of tailored surveys they look much more specifically to try and find interesting planets and they don't care about occurrence rate Um, so actually when you said that those four thousand planets we all have in our in our list at the moment a lot of that information isn't useful if we don't know how that search was done and how many planets were missed. Yeah, and I think it's important here to talk about Kepler because the Kepler space mission was designed specifically to work out these occurrence rates. It was designed in such a way that you could calculate from it these statistics on how many planets there are. Now, it did that by looking at a very specific part of the sky. So you had, a, I suppose, a known volume that you were looking at it was it ended up looking at what 200,000 stars for the 3 years that it was pointing at that one field and from that what what have we learned what did we learn from the kepler mission that 
was designed to do this because there's a lot of things we can talk about, like you said, where missions weren't designed for this. So it's a little bit more tricky, but this is our simplest case. So what have we learned from our simplest case? Well, I mean, you say it's the simplest case, but transits aren't really the easiest way of doing recurrence But it is the one where we've got the most data right now. So, So right now, in terms of calculating those statistics, it is our easiest because we have that mission, but it is not necessarily a priori the easiest way of doing such a thing. Yeah, because I mean, if you look at transits, like planets like the Earth only transit 0.25% of stars will have, you know, with with a, with an Earth-like planet, we'll have a transiting Earth-like planet just because of this detection efficiency. Whereas you go with RVs, you go with microlensing, and you find those things 80% of the time, regardless of what their orbit is. Um, but yeah, so Kepler was searched for four years, as you said, uh, and that meant basically because they were looking for transits that they could only search up to about 500 days in planets, period. So uh, anything with, with planet periods longer than that would not have been caught by the detection because, you know, you need three transits in the case of Kepler to, to find a... And that sets kind of our first upper limit on what we can yeah. extrapolate from this exactly. number. So there's nothing, there's nothing really from Kepler that you can say about planets like Mars and Jupiter. Um, so so any numbers that come out of Kepler will be missing the, the those planets from there, you know, the, the, the numbers. And in fact, if you look at those studies, right, if you look at the the studies that, that were looking at specifically Earth-like planets around Sun-like stars, which is kind of what, as you said, Kepler was designed for, there's this massive difference in what the numbers they produced were. Something like 1% of stars have Earth-like planets all the way up to 100% of stars have Earth-like planets. And when we say Earth-like here, we mean radius, mass, distance? 0.75 Earth radius to 1.5 Earth radius. So these are like the rocky planets on, I think, periods of about 200 to 500 days. Okay. Uh, so so at least for, for this case, Earth-like planet for the Kepler sample is well-defined. It's this kind of box in radius and, and period around the Earth, effectively. And is that also to do with the type of star it's orbiting? Well, I, I'm not sure what you mean, actually. Well, the we know that there are different spectral types of stars. For example, we know that there are some small planets like the TRAPPIST-1 system around an M star. But I believe Kepler was looking mostly at FGK stars, stars that are very similar to the sun, uh, slightly hotter, yeah, slightly right. colder, but not, not too different. Yeah, so Kepler's sample of stars was mostly between about half and twice the radius of the sun. So again, what we've done there is we've defined our box to be based on a type of star, an orbital period range, and a a radius, a size range for that planet. Yeah, so interestingly, this box was kind of designed before Kepler launched. They knew they were going to look at sun-like stars because this is what they really wanted, you know, the occurrence of Earth-like planets around sun-like stars. So they selected that that distribution kind of in advance. And the reason for these, like, vast differences between the occurrence rates, you know, 0.01 0.01 to one. Um, sometimes it's because of uh, there were some some studies were using less data, so uh, some studies didn't. You look at use the last few uh, quarters of data, so the last uh, few months of data from Kepler, and they used different stellar parameters, and they used um, some of them used the this inverse detection efficiency technique, which I talked about, which isn't actually mathematically um, equal to the occurrence rate. You also have to do some extra kind of uh, mental maths in there um which 
is very complicated and I don't even understand. So you have to, uh, <laughs> Dan Foreman Mackey's got a slide deck from Exostar 19 on the occurrence rates. And if you want to know the maths as to why that doesn't actually quite work, then you can go into that. Um, but in the last couple of years, there's been two studies using this thing called approximate Bayesian computation, which is called ABC, which uh, isn't as easy as ABC. Right, I was going to say, it's probably not going to be, is it? No, this is, it basically means you just create a fake, you model the entire mission and you are able to follow what happens to planet populations through the mission and what you get out the other end. Uh, and you see if what you get out the other end matches what you observed. Um, but they found both of these two studies basically found very similar results for Eater Earth of about 12% and 16% of stars like the sun have planets like the earth um and the given that they were completely independent they got the same results and that it's kind of mathematically more rigorous than the previous results i think that that, that number is is the one to look at for kepler and when you said atrf there atrf is just the the phrase the terminology we use to describe that box that we just set out before so atrf comes from the drake equation i believe um and it's simply the number of so in the Drake equation, and you can go back to episode nine, a long time ago, when we talked about SETI, um, the Drake equation is like, how many intelligent civilizations out there are there? And so you, to do that, you look at the number of stars, you multiply it by the number of stars with Earth-like planets, which is Eta Earth. And then there's a whole other factors of like, uh, how common life would be to evolve, how common intelligence life would be to evolve, and how likely they would be to transmit. Um, but the, the Eta Earth is the name of the the one variable that is encapsulates all of the occurrence rate basically of earth-like planets around stars so um so that's where that that phrase comes from and that's one goal for exoplanetary science is to, is to figure out what eta earth actually is but that's talking very specifically about earth-like planets and from these two studies they they found this you're saying very similar kind of range of numbers but what what does that mean outside of that parameter space? Can we say anything? Well, this is the big problem with Ke with Kepler in general, actually, is that Earth-like planets and sub-Earth-like planets are right at the edge of where we've kind of detected lots of candidates. So, I mean, if going back to the fishing example, these are the like two sardines in a box, you know, that we mul have to multiply by this huge factor because we missed all of these these planets, right? We missed so many planets in that range because they're right at the limit of what we can detect that we're doing this big kind of adjustment. And if that adjustment is even a little bit out or we, you know, we maybe randomly detected more or less planets than we than we should have, then that number at the end is going to change enormously. Right. So so that's kind of and that's kind of the reason that another good reason that these uh, values for eta earth changed a lot from kepler and as you say like if you want to go then beyond what we observed in kepler if you want to go to you know the, the frequency of mars like planets or the frequency of mercury like planets both of which were kind of below what kepler could detect in terms of radius then basically we can't say anything you can maybe extrapolate from the planets we did find and say well maybe you know if we if we found at 0.15 you know if we found 15% of stars have Earth-like planets, then probably the proportion of Mars-like planets is going to be similar because they're a similar planet. But we have no information if that's correct. So basically, outside of the range that we've observed, we can't tell you anything about how many planets there are. So another thing that our listeners will probably have heard us mention many times, there is this band of planets that we don't have in our solar system, these super-Earths and these mini-Neptunes that 
seem to occur a lot. What do we know about occurrence rates of other sized planets that aren't in this Earth-like box? So we actually know super-Earth occurrence rates better than we do Earth's just because they're larger. Um, so we, have, we, we were able to detect them more efficiently and, and we have you know, a box with more, more planets in. Um, and it turns out the super-Earths, it seems, are even more frequent than Earth's um, around solar-type stars. But there is a slight problem here in that Kepler and all of these surveys have looked at close-in planets. And maybe there's a bias towards having more super-Earths closer into their star, but out like where the Earth is, that um, distribution falls off. So again, that box is defined by these parameters that we've got, this distance from the star, the size of the planet and the type of star they're orbiting. And when we look at, and correct me if I'm wrong, but periods less than 100 days, we see that these super-Earths, these these planets that have a radius between the Earth and 1.7 or 1.8 Earth radii are incredibly common. But again, that box is down below a 100-day orbital period. So it's really important that we define where those kind of, what those nets are and what those instruments are, like you said. And then again, for these larger mini Neptunes, which are on the other side of that radius gap that we've, you might have heard about on the show before, above this 1.8 Earth radius boundary, all the way up to nearly four times the radius of Earth, right kind of around two and a half times the radius of the Earth, there's this other peak where we see lots of planets, but again, that's below 100 days. But as we look at these occurrence rates, there's no way we can extrapolate beyond those boxes is what you're saying. Not unless you, like, make huge assumptions. <laughs> <laughs> Not unless you start making things up. So this is one thing that, you know, you be, be aware of, and I think is really important, is it's those definitions and those, those boundaries that we're talking about. But in itself, that, that isn't a negative thing. That's a really fascinating thing that we never even knew before. We had no idea these planets were out there. And even though our box is slightly different from what we might consider, you know, an Earth or a planet like anything in our solar system whatsoever, these numbers are telling us something very important about how planets form and what kinds of worlds are out there. So out of these hundreds, thousands of worlds we're discovering, we are learning incredibly new things from these occurrence rates. And that surely has to be kind of the point of them, right? We've talked a lot about the the how uh, and the what, but maybe less about the why we're doing this. Why is it important for us to know how many exoplanets are out there? Yeah, it's an interesting number to be able to provide at the uh, when someone asks you at the beginning of a talk. But as you said, when we started looking, we found planets that we before Kepler went up and before we knew that super-Earths were a thing, we might not have even imagined that they would have existed as we didn't have one in, in our solar system. So the whole planet occurrence thing helps us to try and figure out how our solar system or how the Earth might fit into that that larger picture. It's, it's answering or trying to answer these really fundamental questions about one, you know, if we, we could make it very human, you know, about our place in the universe and what it means to be alive, and if we're giving any meaning, if there's any other intelligent life out there. But from a very physical sense, it could just be, you know, what is it that's special, if or not, about this planet and this star and, you know, this planetary system in terms of how it formed and, you know, how things moved around? Is there something that we can generalize from, uh, you know, observations of this solar system if those observations hold when we have a larger statistical sample to compare it to? 
Um, and truly, it's got to be one of the primary drivers of this kind of work. It's not just an interesting thing that you know we can do for our detection efficiencies to figure out instrumentation, but it has to be the bigger question here is, you know, where do we fit in, right? Yeah, and I think that's the, the big root of the question. And the way people ask it is, how many are there? And in the back of that question, even when you say it, how many how many exoplanets are there? When you say it, you're thinking, we're on a planet. How many other planets are there like us out there? How many other planets like what I can see in the night sky are there out there? It really come it really is a question that roots from ourselves and are trying to place us in this universe of hundreds of thousands of stars and planets. Well, I think you did a, a great job with his uh, with his fishing analogy. I've learned quite a bit about about fishing as well as about detection efficiencies. I did no um, research on fishing, so you may have learned <laughs> bad things. Well, there was you knew a surprising amount um, considering. <laughs> Um, but you know, you did a great job of of highlighting the the foibles and the caveats of interpreting these uh, these numbers that we get. Um, you know, whether it's eight or Earth or just pure planet uh, occurrence rates, because of we have because we have to know about the criteria that uh, was 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 used to determine whether it was you know whether it was a planet, what the detection efficiency uh, was, and that kind of excludes the things that we haven't had a chance to really consider yet. And I mean, obviously, we can't plan for things that we don't know about. Um, but the numbers that we're discussing here, these planet occurrence rate, many, most of them can or are less than one, which implies that there could be and probably are stars out there that don't have any planets at all in their orbit. Now, the corollary of all of this discussion is, well, what can that tell us, right? What can a, what can a starless planet tell us about planet formation, about star formation, about that particular star forming cluster, about planet evolution? That's not something we've really, we've really touched on. I think that's, that's something that we can really do a lot with right now. It's like trying to prove a negative, but it is the corollary that comes from this. Again, we're finding weird, weird uh, kind of categories that don't work. And I like that we started the discussion with um, the NASA Exoplanet Archive, because if you think back to our discussion with Jesse um, Christensen, who works uh, who works there and told us a lot about that that catalog, there that catalog itself has its own criteria, right? And each catalog that you look at has a slightly different number of exoplanets that are there. So for the NASA Exoplanet Archive, their criteria are the mass or the minimum mass has to be equal to or less than thirty Jupiter masses. Um, it has to be uh, has to have sufficient follow up observations and validation, and it has to be uh, available in peer reviewed publications. So usually it falls below the the standard for the Exocast News. Um, but crucially, the final criteria is that the planet can't be free floating. It can't be a planet without a star. It can't be a rogue planet, right? And that's the other corollary. If we have planets that have uh, sorry, if we have stars without planets, we also in theory have planets without stars. And this is something that has been studied. And there was a paper that came out February last. Year, um, if you believe it, that suggests 50 billion free-floating planets uh, in Ooh. our galaxy. It's about one per four stars, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So they looked at a star-forming cluster and they extrapolated that up to the galaxy. Right. Now, the, our listeners can now, you know, take that uh, those assumptions and make of them what they will. But that does mean that it changes our estimates about the number of planets that are out there. You know, our net is completely. We don't even have a net that can catch these planets, right? And when we do, it's probably, uh, what did you say? The line and rod approach here, where we just randomly, luckily stumble upon a planet that we can't really follow up or we can't characterize. And that obviously has to bias our, our firstly, the number of exoplanets that we know about, add another 50 billion, maybe. <laughs> uh, but also it could, you know, 
it maybe biases us in the fact that because we can't follow it up or because we can't plan for those observations as well, um, then we dismiss that, that cohort as, uh, as, as a potential population, even though they might have a, a vast range of, of masses and compositions that, that we're missing out on. I think this is another case where maybe there's an extrapolation, an assumption going on where you find a number of objects in a cluster and you say, well, it's the same everywhere, whereas we exactly. don't. That's a big extrapolation beyond what the study was actually doing. So, And that really comes back to that opposing question that you, you posed. What can the number of stars without planets tell us? And where did these free floating planets come from is an important question. Did they come from systems where we can see a planet or did they come from the stars without planets? Where did they come from is a really important question there because it changes our answer to that opposing question. It changes the way we would think about the efficiency of planet formation. Because if those planets came from systems that still have planets and we're discovering and accounting for those, okay. But if it if they came from ones that now have no planets that we're able to measure around them, how does that change the way that we answer and understand the efficiency of planet formation? So there's just a huge amount to be picked apart in the way in which we discover planets and how we can use that to back out these occurrence rates and to back out that understanding of how many planets there are. So Hugh, there's a number of different ways that we're looking at, uh, at you know, four planets and you're kind of rooted in, in a number of them. But we've talked about before, and I remember you convinced me the, the goal of the Roman Space Telescope. And I was like, oh, okay, we need to send this thing up. When you talked about the microlensing survey, could you just talk a little bit about that and how that's going to help us understand a bit more about these occurrence rates? Sure. So, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, transits aren't the best way of getting planets because they don't the majority of planets orbiting a star, they don't transit. They, they're orbiting at an angle. So, uh, whereas microlensing is actually a really good way of, of doing occurrence rates because it's kind of unbiased towards a planet's orbit. And it probes the region around 1AU as well, which is where we want to look for kind of eta Earth and, and, and that sort of thing. And when planets are found to be microlensing as well, we observe each planet's mass and its instantaneous distance from the star because what, we, what is effectively happening is there's a distant star and there's a star with a planet that's moving in front of that distant star. And the, there's this lensing effect because of general relativity, right? Because of Einstein's theories of, of gravitation means that mass bends space-time. That the mass of the star and the planets around that star, which are passing in front of that background star, act as lenses for the background star. And we see this, these increases in light, which can only be because of an extra mass in the system. Um, so that's kind of how microlensing works. Uh, but it means that Unlike Kepler, where you have to wait for four years to get three transits of something on 500 days, we just get a planet like that. We just see this bump in the light curve instantaneously. We know how far it is from the star, and we know how big it is. Um, so that means that uh, through microlensing, you can study a lot more planets because you don't have to wait around. There is a kind of problem here because you don't know the exact orbit of the planet. You know how far away from it, it was from its star, but you, it might have been... Um, it might be close to its star in a very long orbit, you know, like moving behind the star, or it might be at the very end, like furthest extension of its orbit in like an eccentric system. So there's a slight um, problem there, but in a statistical sense, that's very easy to just marginalize over, to use the technical term. <laughs> you just kind of average smear over all of the orbits you expect and you get the, the, the answer out. 
Uh, the Nancy Roman Space Telescope is likely to find 1,000 planets, planetary size bodies, down to something like this ma- the mass of Ganymede, so um, wow. Jupiter's moon. It could detect even the moons of giant planets, um, and it will do it in this range of about 0.5 to 4 AU, where we will get you know the the occurrence rate of Earth's, Mars's, Jupiter's, um, these kind of planets which currently we're missing really from our knowledge of occurrence rates. Yeah, that's going to be fascinating because what we don't have, like we said before, is any knowledge of whether this huge population of mini Neptunes and super Earths extends out beyond a hundred days of the star. Well, you say that actually. So there's been previous microlensing surveys which have been able to go down to Neptune size. And they found about 1.6 Neptune and Jupiter-sized planets per star. Yeah, and I think and one thing that we do kind of need to point out with this is there is no potential for follow-up on those systems. So while we get that one instantaneous measurement, we won't get a measurement of those systems again. So unlike transits where we need to confirm them through multiple observations, these are these are one and done. And that also presents some unknowns in those systems we can't explore them further so while it's very very fascinating for these occurrence rates and trying to understand how many exoplanets are there it doesn't doesn't help us in a number of the other ways we're trying to understand our place in the universe but i think in some ways that's fine i mean one of, oh, one of the of biggest yeah. goats i had with kepler was that whenever kepler found an earth-like planet candidate which was also far away and and small they would they would publish it as like you know this this amazing discovery which we can study in more detail oh, but that's not true you know that we've because we've, we were finding the these candidates before. we've talked about this so many times on, on the I know, show I know. <laughs> but the good i mean i think i hope that with the roman space telescope these 1000 planets they find will not be used will not be held up as potential keystones for james webb to observe because it can't they'll just can't. be held up as this is a key to our understanding of how many planets there are as kepler planets were as well um and not become a poster child. Yeah, I think it's so important to talk about things in the fascinating phase space in which they exist. Like, just because it's an Earth, it doesn't mean you have to only be fascinated with it being Earth 2.0. It's fascinating in its existence. In yeah. its just pure existence and place, it means we can understand more. So I think that I'm really hoping that this this microlensing survey does that. And yes, I agree with you. I think it's going to be absolutely fascinating. I think we're going to learn some very strange stuff. We'll find those mermaids. Wait, unicorns. And another thing that we really haven't touched on too much is we know that there is occurrence rates of stars as well. We know that different types of stars exist in very different numbers and that the most abundant type of stars are these small red M stars, these M dwarfs, these cold, red, long-living small stars. What can we know about those? As they're the most abundant in, in our galaxy, what what might that tell us about the types of planets? Not only the most abundant, but you know, they might also be able to support uh, a good number of planets, right? There does seem to be some some relationship with you know planet inverse relationship with uh, with planet size and occurrence rate. Um, so there could be you know these these small planets around these small stars. In fact, uh, estimates from from about seven years ago now, so pretty old estimates that for maybe every two M dwarf stars that are out there, we might have a one terrestrial Earth sized planet in the optimistic habitable zone of the star. 
I think in Kepler that number was 0.16, but they did find 2.5 planets per star, which is higher than they found for other stars. So uh, yeah, it's certainly evidence that there's a lot of planets there that could potentially support life. Yeah. This is the this is the difference between the number of planets versus the number of planets per star that you were mentioning at the beginning. No, no. Well, the number of planets per star and the number of planets per star in a box, right? So in right in the Eta Earth box is a lot smaller. Yeah, but I mean, so if we're thinking about the fact that the most common type of star in our galaxy um, probably has, you know, a good number of of planets uh, in their orbit, this does raise the obvious question, right? That has been asked before by others, not just us. Well. Where the hell is all the life then, right? If we have these planets that could support life out there, that they could be habitable, uh, we have a good, uh, you know, becoming increasingly more constrained estimate for the pure number of planets that are there. Just as a statistical thing, you know, where 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 is all the life? Um, and as as you mentioned earlier, the the fraction of stars that have planets and the average number of planets that might support life per star, i.e., eta Earth, are two big tuning parameters within the Drake equation, which again, as you mentioned, is that kind of linear equation that you basically knock off different uh, different parameters uh, to figure out how many uh, intelligent civilizations there might be in the in the universe at any one time. So that raises issues of of habitable environments. And I think the planet occurrence rate work uh, has really moved our understanding of the habitable zone and habitability along quite a bit. Uh, in, in, in that sense, right? If we're saying that there are these planets out there that are in the habitable zone, um, of, of these many stars that we can find, that does raise issues of habitable environments existing on non-Earth-like planets, uh, not in the habitable zone, as we know happens in the solar system, right? You know, the icy moons of, of, uh, of the outer, uh, solar system planets might actually be some of the, the most, uh, resourceful astrobiological repositories in our solar system and they're nowhere near the habitable zone so we're potentially missing those um and the question might be the, the follow-up could it be that this is just a skewing of our uh, search methodologies and, and Hugh mentioned that the roman space telescope might be able to find us those those cool moons so maybe that will improve uh, and we could solve this discrepancy if there is one by knowing more about the planets but this does speak to uh, a concept i guess that was that was uh, proposed by uh, David Warden uh, and, Bra- and Brownlee quite a, quite a few years ago now called the Rare Earth Hypothesis, which is probably something you're familiar with, but it basically says that there's got to be something special about our planet because we're here. It's very, very uh, arrogant and, and anthropocentric, uh, uh, but it does raise a good point. If we're finding these these planets or we are estimating that there are billions of these planets there, there has to be some other contextual planetary or or astrophysical factor that's affecting habitability. Otherwise, just by pure, pure statistical, you know, uh, chance, there would be, in theory, more more life out there. Um, so we should maybe it's it, it's it's arguably helped us to shift our perspective from considering the potential diversity of of habitable environments as opposed to just stars in the habitable zone, which I know is still a, a, a feature or still a, a metric that folks look to and is still useful. But I can't deny that this hasn't changed our, our our thinking about that a little bit, which in itself has to be a has to be a good thing, right? And as Hugh said, when when Kepler first went up, every single planet they found in the habitable zone was this is Earth 2.0. When Hannah said it earlier, I, I was shaking my head, not because I disagreed, but because I just I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that phrase. But yeah, they and, and they they were guilty of it certainly. Um, and that might just be come come down to the fact is that we just didn't know how many that there would be out there, how what the diversity of them would be, and and finding them might have just 
you know, being that 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 um, that one thing, that that popularizing thing for 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 for, for the the wider uh, wider population of, of people who are just interested in astronomy to really bring them in to, to exoplanets. If you can say, wow, yeah. we think that there's all of these Earth-like planets out there. So actually, there was a paper from Kepler on exomoon for exomoon occurrences. So they didn't actually find any uh, Galilean moon systems, but they were able to kind of limit the upper bound of Galilean-like moon systems to something like 0.16 exomoon systems per giant planet. Although I should mention that their giant planet, the box of you know giant planets they were looking at, didn't include Jupiter. So whether these are really Galilean moons is is to be to be up for debate because they only went out as a Kepler sample. So there were only planets up to about 500 days in that sample. Well, I think that we've kind of shown, managed to show here that the question of how many exoplanets are there is not at times the simplest one to think about. But we can say for certain that there are over 4,000 that have been discovered, observed, measured, confirmed exoplanets. And that number is likely to rise, in fact, double in the next 27 months. And that from the Kepler mission, we have been able to kind of obtain a number that says that for a eta Earth, so an Earth that is at around an FGK star, so a star very similar to the Sun, on an orbital period of 230 to roughly 500 days, and with a radius between 0.75 and 1.5, Earth radii, that there is somewhere between 0 and 0.3, there is uh, this eta Earth out there. There is this occurrence rate for this type of planet. And we're going to keep revising this number. We're excited for the Roman Space Telescope's microlensing survey and what we can learn about planets on very different boxes, in very different fishing nets. And hopefully we can start bringing this down to help really answer the question that is behind how many exoplanets are there? How many Earths are there? How many of us are there? And that's a question that the astrobiologists like Andrew are going to have to answer. So I think this nice complex question can be wrapped up here. Well, that was an interesting discussion. I don't think we got that much closer um, to an actual answer, but hopefully that can... Uh, help all of us listening here and all of us in the studio to interpret those terms a little bit better when you next hear about an occurrence rate um, to, to think about the, the complexities uh, that go into that, that number in itself. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, again, don't forget to look out for our other two episodes uh, from this month, uh, whenever you get your podcasts and wherever you get them from, uh, as we chat with Dr. Baptiste Jeannot uh, about icy moons and planets, in which was a great discussion, I thought. Um, and as always, we provide a roundup of uh, recent exoplanet news. But for now, uh, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Exocast. This podcast was brought to you by the Exocast team. Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Hugh Osborne, the Test K-Ops Fellow at MIT and the University of Bern. And Andrew Rushby, a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Thanks for listening. Exocast. I have exoplanets.